like to ask you to turn to our text for this morning, which is Joshua chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. Joshua chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. That's on page 172 if you're following along in the Bibles and the pews here. We are continuing a sermon series looking at the intersection of faith and politics. We've been doing that for seven weeks now. Uh, we've got a few more weeks to go. Um, as I have said repeatedly, this sermon series is not intended to tell you uh, what to think or who to vote for or which party to support. It's instead been intended to help us as Christian believers think in a Christ-like and Christian way about how to to engage this area of our lives that we call politics. And so we continue that this morning. Joshua chapter 5, verses 13 through 15, and this is what it says. Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Sisters and brothers in Jesus Christ, before accepting the call to come and serve as senior pastor here at Ivanrest Church, I spent seven years working in youth ministry uh, at Brookfield Christian Reformed Church just outside of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And as part of my work there, I led our high school youth group. As part of leading our high school youth group, I helped plan and organize and lead our annual uh, high school fall retreat. And as part of leading that retreat, I also helped organize and lead our traditional Friday night game of Capture the Flag. Now, for those of you who aren't familiar uh, with the rules of Capture the Flag, or it's simply been a long time since youth group, uh, there are two teams. Each team gets one half of the playing area. Each team also gets a flag that they have to hide somewhere in their uh, part of the playing area. And then once the game starts, the goal is for each team to try to infiltrate the other team's side um, and steal their flag and bring it back to their side. The first team to successfully do so, to capture the other team's flag and get it all the way back uh, to their team's side, wins the game. Now, like I said, I organized and led that game for seven years. During those seven years, I saw many different tactics, strategies, and daring maneuvers by both kids and overzealous youth leaders um, to try to get the other side's flag. A few of them worked, most of them didn't, and would result in the kids and the leaders who tried them getting put in jail. But one year, I saw a strategy so ingenious that I actually adopted it as my own, which as one of those overzealous youth leaders I would use whenever I played Capture the Flag. Uh, the kid who came up with it was named Christian. At the start of the game, Christian ran to a part of the border between his team's side and the other team's side where there was no one guarding it. He looked to the left, he looked to the right, and once he was sure that there was no one around, he simply turned around and backed his way across the border and then stood there. Before long, a few members of the other team came running along to guard that part of the border, but when they found Christian there looking at his side, it didn't look like he was from the other team and had infiltrated their side. Instead, it looked like he was part of their team guarding the border, something that he reinforced by chasing a few of his own teammates back across the border. 
After he had done that for a little while, uh, he's just sort of slowly backed up a little further and became part of the midline defense in the middle of the plane area, chasing more of his teammates back across the border. And then after a little while of doing that, he backed up again and then again and then again until the other team actually made him one of the people guarding their flag. At one point, when all of the other people who were guarding the flag had to go and chase some of Christian's teammates back across the border, he was left alone with the flag, at which point he made his move, bent over, picked it up, and then walked back to his side with the flag, delivering them the victory. Again, it's the most ingenious capture the flag strategy I've ever seen. We as leaders were amazed. The other side, the other team was stunned. They couldn't believe it. We had no idea which side he was on, they said. We thought he was on our team. Turns out he wasn't. Well, in the same way, in our passage for this morning, Joshua, who is the Israelite leader and general tasked with taking over the promised land here, leading Israel's army to take over the promised land, is unsure of which side someone he comes across in this passage is on too. On the eve of Israel's first battle for the promised land, the battle of Jericho, Joshua comes across a mysterious figure here in this text, dressed like a warrior and holding a sword in his hand. Which side are you on? Joshua asks. Are you on our side or are you on the other side, the side of our enemies? And as we'll see, Given who this mystery man turns out to be, the response that Joshua gets here is more than a little interesting. Now, like we said, this passage takes place at the start of Israel's conquest of the promised land, the land of Canaan. Canaan was called the promised land because that's what it was. Starting all the way back with their forefather Abraham, God had promised his people, the Israelites, that one day he would give them the land of Canaan as a land of their own. And eventually God followed through on that promise and brought the Israelites to the land of Canaan. Unfortunately, though, the Israelites didn't do a very good job of receiving that promise. You see, this is actually Israel's second attempt to take over the promised land here. The first attempt, which is detailed in Numbers 13 through 14, didn't go very well. That's because when they showed up and they encountered the Canaanites, um, they, they were basically afraid of them. And they doubted God, and they refused to take the land. After a 40-year punishment of wandering in the wilderness, in response to that, though, the Israelites are back. It's time for take two. It's time for another go at it. And so they spy out the land, cross the Jordan River, and set up camp near Jericho, the first Canaanite city they need to conquer. And that's where our text picks things up. Joshua, who was the successor to Moses and is Israel's commander-in-chief here, seems to have gone on a scouting expedition at the beginning of this text. He's sort of scoping things out a bit, checking Jericho's defenses and evaluating the battle plan and how it might proceed, when suddenly he comes across a mysterious figure. The text says, when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Now, first, we should pause here and note that commentators have suggested just about every possible identity for this mystery man in this text. Uh, for instance, some have, uh, have suggested that this is what's called a pre-incarnational manifestation of the second person of the Trinity, which is an overly complicated and overly theological way of saying they think it's Jesus. Uh, others, though, think that this is simply an angel that Joshua runs into here, possibly the archangel Michael or some other heavenly warrior that God has sent to direct the battle for Jericho. Either way, Joshua is confused. 
He doesn't know who this is. He doesn't know why he's here or which side he's on, and so he decides to ask. The text says, Joshua went up to the man and asked, are you for us or for our enemies? Joshua wants to know, who is this guy? Whose side is he on? Is he on our side? Is he here on our behalf? Is he here to fight for us? Or is he on the other side? Is he on the side of our enemies? Is he here to fight for them? Truth be told, we've got a lot of that going on these days too, don't we? That need to draw lines, determine allies, and separate friend from foe, I would say is everywhere in our current cultural climate especially in our political climate right now. In a day and an age where virtue signaling, groupthink, and which associations we do or don't have determines our trustworthiness, our reliability, even to an extent our basic goodness in the eyes of some people, we have made a near science out of needing to know where people stand on things. If you're for us, then good. We like you, we respect you, and we're on your side. But if you're not, then you're bad, you're evil, we hate you, and we will cancel you into oblivion. That's our political and cultural climate these days. Our relationships, our friendships, and our associations with others is fast becoming almost entirely dependent on whether we think the same, act the same, and most importantly, vote the same. If we do, then we're good, we can be friends, we can exist in each other's lives, but if we don't, then we're done, we're over, and we can wash our hands of each other. That's become the criteria for our line drawing these days, for picking our sides, for choosing who we will or won't associate with. Increasingly, it's whether or not we agree on things. And one of the things that, it deter that it's determined by is whether or not we agree on politics. Which is part of what I think makes the answer that Joshua gets in this text so interesting. He encounters this mystery man here, asks him which side he's on, and then this is what the text says. Neither, the mystery man replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. You see, it turns out that this isn't just some guy that Joshua encounters here. It's not just some person. It's not just some human being. Instead, it's God, or at the very least, God's representative. You see, regardless of which commentators are right, whether Joshua encounters an angel or Jesus here or someone else entirely, it is clear that this mysterious figure outside of Jericho is meant to be a representative of God himself. That's who Joshua is questioning. That's who he's challenging here. That's who he's trying to figure out and leverage for his side. He's trying to leverage and get God on his side. And again, that's something that we actually have a lot of going on these days too, right? Put simply, the list of parties, platforms, candidates, and people trying to co-opt God, claim him for their side, and manipulate him for their side is endless. Everyone seems to think God is on their side these days, right? Um, backing their party, uh, part of their, uh, backing their candidate, part of their group, part of their party. The fact that they all believe different things, so God can't possibly be on all their different sides, doesn't really matter, right? If you're a Republican, then God's a Republican. If you're a Democrat, then God's a Democrat. And if you're something else, then God is something else. But no matter what, he's on your side. This really came home to me the other week. I was listening to a podcast a, a few weeks ago, and as part of the discussion, um, the host mentioned that actually the two biggest voting blocks in our country, in the United States, 
are comprised of Christians. I didn't know that. That actually surprised me. I knew that one of the biggest voting blocks in our country is comprised of Christians, but he said it was actually the top two. That's because the biggest voting block in our country are white Protestant Christians, and I, that's the one that I knew. I was well aware that white evangelicals are a giant voting block in our country. Um, but then the, the podcast host said that the second biggest voting block in our country are black Protestant Christians. And yet, he said, even though they're both Christian, even though they both believe the same thing, even though they both hold the same faith, they vote differently. That's because white Protestant Christians tend to vote for the Republican Party, and black Protestant Christians tend to vote for the Democratic Party. And yet, they're both Christians. They're both people of faith. And they both clearly, or at least if they're allowing their faith to inform and affect their political decisions, think that they are voting the way God wants them to. And regardless of what we think, and I know some of us here have some pretty different opinions socially and politically, that's something it seems that we all agree on. In fact, in, in today's polarized, pulled apart, overly politicized culture, that might be the only thing that we still agree on, which is that regardless of what positions we hold, what parties we support, what candidates we want to see get elected, we all seem to think that God is on our side, in our corner, part of our party, and helping us to defeat those who aren't. And yet when Joshua asks precisely that question here, which side is God on? What does God have his representative say? Neither. Now first, I'll just say that if there ever was a side God was on, it was probably this one. Uh, it's Israel's side here. After all, God is the one who has promised the Israelites the land of Canaan, right? He's the one who liberated them from Egypt and brought them through the wilderness. He's the one who stuck with them through their rebellion, their doubt, their disobedience. And now he's the one who has brought them back to Canaan for a second go at it as they make a second attempt to conquer the land. And yet when Joshua asks God's representative whose side he's on, he says, neither. I'm not on your side. I'm not on the other side either. But now that the battle is about to begin, as the commander of the Lord's army, I have come. So what's going on here? Well, I think the point is actually pretty simple. That's because what I think is going on here is that God is telling Joshua that his question, which side are you on, that the very basis of that question is wrong. You see, the question isn't, whose side is God on? Is he on our side or is he on the other side? Is he on the side of us or our enemies? Instead, the question is, or at least it should be, are we on his side? Are we on God's side? That's the point I think God is trying to make here. For a very simple reason, which is that God's purposes in this world are going to happen and he is going to accomplish them regardless of what Israel does or doesn't do here. Whether they win this battle or not, God is not limited by their success or failure. The Israelites will be limited by it, but God will not be. Instead, he's got something much bigger going on in the world, and the Israelites, regardless of what does or doesn't happen here, are only one small part of it. As uh, Old Testament commentator John Goldengate puts it in his commentary on this passage, in John 3.16, John says God loved the cosmos, the world as a whole, the world as a system. 
Of course, God does love each of us as individuals, but that isn't God's only priority. There are other aspects to God's activity in the world, too. The commander of God's army makes a similar point with Joshua. The man refuses to accept Joshua's way of framing the question. Instead, Joshua has to take more seriously that he and his army are part of a bigger picture. And that's it. That's the point here. God isn't on Joshua's side. He's not on Israel's side. He's not here to make sure that they succeed and accomplish what they want to. Instead, they are on his side. The Israelites there are to make sure God succeeds and that he accomplishes his purposes, that he achieves what he wants to achieve, which, by the way, God would be able to do whether the Israelites are successful or not. And that's the point for us still today, too. You see, try as we might to reduce him to it, God is not a pawn to be played in our political power games. It's not a matter of figuring out which parties, policies, platforms, and candidates God would most align with or approve of these days. That honestly stuffs God in a box. It makes him small. It makes him easily manageable and easy to manipulate, and God is bigger than that. He is not on our side in favor of our party supporting our candidate or anyone else's either. Instead, we are on his side. We are here to accomplish his purposes. We are here to pursue his goals, his will, his desired outcome for this country, and more broadly, for this world. And that, my friends, is so much bigger and more complicated than we often make it seem. To illustrate that, um, I'd like to talk for a bit about something called package deal ethics. Uh, back, in the, uh, back in 2018, in the run-up to the 2018 midterm elections, so four years ago, pastor and author Tim Keller wrote an op-ed for the New York Times titled, How Do Christians Fit Into the Two-Party System? They Don't. Keller argued that Christians, at least here in the United States, cannot and should not align themselves only with one or the other of the two major parties. He gives a few reasons uh, in the article, and then he writes this. Another reason Christians these days cannot allow the church to be fully identified with any particular party is the problem of what British ethicist James Mumford calls package deal ethics. Increasingly, political parties insist that you cannot work on one issue with them if you don't embrace all their approved positions. This emphasis on package deals puts pressure on Christians in politics. For example, following both the Bible and the early church, Christians should be committed to racial justice and the poor, but also to the understanding that sex is only for marriage and for nurturing family. One of those views seems liberal, and the other looks oppressively conservative. The historical Christian positions on social issues do not fit into contemporary political alignments. What Keller is basically saying there is that modern political parties like the Democrats and Republicans leave us no room to pick and choose what we think about different issues. Instead, they try to force us to agree with their entire package of positions. If we agree with them on one thing, they tell us that we have to agree with them on everything. We see you agree with us on this, they say. Good. Now here are the 45 other things you have to agree with us on, too. And what Keller says there is that that doesn't work for Christian believers. It doesn't work because, as we've been talking about, as Christians, we don't start, or at least we shouldn't, first and foremost with a side. 
Instead, as Christians, we start, or at least we should start, with the Bible, with our faith, with what we believe as believers, not Democrats or Republicans, not members of a certain political party. And then as a result, we should ask ourselves the question, what does it look like to be on that side? What does it look like to be on the side of Scripture? What does it look like to be not on the side of some political party, but God's side? What does it look like to accomplish his purposes, to pursue his will, and to achieve what he wants to achieve in this country and more broadly in this world? And the answer, Keller says, and I think he's right on this, is that it, quite frankly, it depends on the issue. That's because with some issues, Bible-believing Christians might find themselves agreeing with one party. With other issues, they might find themselves agreeing with another party. And with some issues, they might find themselves agreeing with none of the options. For instance, let's use the pro-life or sanctity of life position as an example. I personally hold to a pro-life or sanctity of life uh, position. And I hold to a pro-life or sanctity of life position because I believe that the pro-life or sanctity of life position best reflects the Bible's teaching about human life, dignity, value, and worth. For instance, as Genesis 1.27 says, God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. What that passage is telling us is that as human beings, we are made in the image of God. All of us. Every single one of us. No exceptions. And because we are made in the image of God, we all have an inherent right to life and inherent dignity, value, and worth. And as a result, we deserve to be treated in such a way that our life, dignity, value, and worth is safeguarded. More than safeguarded, actually, because when you really read Scripture, the image that we get is that it's not just our existence or survival, but actually our thriving and flourishing that is intended by God. That is what we are meant for. That is what others are meant for, too. And so as Christians, we are called to do our best to promote that kind of thriving and flourishing for everyone. Now, because I hold that position, I also hold a number of so-called political positions. And again, like I've said before, these are my positions. These are the conclusions I've come to. I am not telling you what to think or believe. I'm just telling you what I do. For starters, I am opposed to abortion. Uh, put simply, I believe that ending a life in the womb is just that. It is the ending of a life. And so given what I believe about preserving and enhancing life, I cannot agree with that. Now already I need to hit pause. Uh, and clarify a couple of things. First, I do believe that the exceptions in the case of life of the mother, rape, and incest all make good sense. And I don't think that my logic is fully consistent with that, but that's the place I've come to. Second, I also need to say that for any of you who have had an abortion, I also believe in God's grace. As a pastor, I have counseled women who have had abortions, and while I believe that that was the wrong decision, I also believe that God extends his mercy, love, and forgiveness to everyone who seeks it through Jesus Christ. That is the gospel that we believe. So I'm opposed to abortion, but I'm also opposed to the death penalty. And I know, I hear it all the time, there is a difference between innocent children who have done nothing wrong and people who have been convicted of a crime. I get it. Trust me, I have heard all the arguments out there. 
Um, but again, my reason for being pro-life is that people are made in the image of God, and that does not end with a conviction. And so because I'm pro-life, I'm opposed to the death penalty. I'm also, by the way, opposed to euthanasia, firearms, racism, and war. And I am for social services, foster care, adoption, and treating people with dignity and respect. For me, and again, these are my positions, I am not telling you what to think, those are all pro-life positions that flow from what I believe is a consistent pro-life biblical ethic. Now just regardless of what you think about the things that I've just listed, and regardless of whether you agree with me on any of that, just think about those things. Abortion, the death penalty, euthanasia, firearms, racism, war, social services, and all the rest. What party do those line up with? What, what platform? Where do those fit in our bipartisan political spectrum these days? Neither, right? Those things kind of split party lines, don't they? For instance, my views on abortion, euthanasia, foster care, and adoption all sound like Republican positions. But my views on the death penalty, firearms, racism, and social services sound more like democratic positions. Meanwhile, at least at the moment, my views on war and treating others with dignity and respect sound like neither. So what's going on here? Am I just a confused mess of a person uh, who doesn't know what to think or which side to support? Well, yeah, kind of. But the reason I'm a confused mess of a person is because I don't start with either of those two sides, liberal or conservative, Republican or Democrat, and what they tell me to support. Instead, and I'm sure I don't always get this right, I'm not saying that I'm perfect, right? But what I try to do as a believer is start with Scripture, with the Bible, and with what our faith as Christian believers tells us to support my best reading and understanding of that. In other words, rather than starting with a political party or side and trying to force God into it so that I can justify what I believe with him, I try as much as I can to start with God's side and what he would have me support, regardless of whether that lines up with one party or the other. And what happens when we do that? What happens when we start not with our sides, with the lines we've drawn, with what we want to have happen or have accomplished, but with God? Well, one of the things that I think happens is that we realize the bigger picture. We realize that there is more going on in this world. We realize that there is more nuance and gray to it, that it is not nearly as black and white. And as a result, we realize that God is so much bigger so much more powerful and so much more majestic and glorious than we thought. At least that's what Joshua realizes here in this text. After God's representative reveals who he is to Joshua, the text says, Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? He doesn't argue. You should be on our side. You should be on our team. He falls down in worship. And the commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. You see, when he realizes that God isn't reducible to sides, that he's bigger than that, and that the things that he's accomplishing in his world are bigger than that too, Joshua himself is reduced to worship. 
He can do nothing other than fall to the ground, reverence his Lord, and praise him for his magnitude, his grandeur, his glory. And that, my friends, is what we are called to do too. You see, God is so much bigger than our side, so much bigger than the lines we draw, so much bigger than the boxes we try to stuff him in. His purposes go way beyond political positions, outcomes in elections, and even our country as a whole. Every single election, we are told this is the most important election ever, this is the most important election ever, this is the most important election ever. You notice that? Every election is the most important ever. Except for God stands Lord over them all. He is so much bigger than that. That's because his purposes are global. They are literally universal, cosmic in scope, because God's purposes include nothing less than the full restoration and renewal of everything he has made, his entire creation. We call that the gospel. It's the good news of how God is working to redeem and restore all things. And my friends, it is so much bigger than any one political party, any one political platform, any one political preference or candidate. That's because the gospel is about Jesus Christ. It's about God reconciling all things together in him. And it's about God using him to bring forgiveness, mercy, and salvation to all of us who trust in his name, regardless of what position or side we happen to take in earthly human affairs. Like Joshua, that ought to reduce us to worship. It ought to reduce us to awe in the presence of God. And it ought to help us realize that rather than him being on our side, we are on his. Thanks be to God. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord, it is easy for us to stuff you in a box. It's easy because it makes our decisions more simple. It's easy to simply try to manipulate or co-opt you, but you are too big for us to do that. Help us, Lord, to seek your will where you lead us, what you desire, and for us to glorify your glory.